because tonight I have one of my favorite founders on the show. He is the founder of Flurry, uh, and Flurry is an insure tech company, and I won't give away the value proposition because it's a, a company that I'm very excited about. But tonight I have as my guest, Mr. Sam Badu. What's up, Sam? Hey, Elio. Um, I, I really appreciate uh, being here. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, I do have to ask, where do you find the energy, right, to keep yourself pumped um, throughout the intro, throughout everything? Um, I, I need to be on what you're on. Yo, if I told you, they got to be paying me to tell you what I take to stay pumped, man. You know, I need an endorsement deal, man. It's energy. You know, we need, I need to talk to a company who's uh, who's keeping me pumped up. No, that's just a joke. I, I really enjoy doing this podcast. I really enjoy talking to founders. When the camera comes on, the microphone comes on, the energy comes uh, with it. So that that's how I keep my energy up, man. This keeps me alive. So I'm in service to it as much as it, it is in service to me. Yeah, yeah that, that's great. So it's good to have you, man. It's been a long time. Well, it hasn't been a long time historically because I don't I don't typically repeat guests, right? I try not to do that because then it looks like, yeah, I'm just bringing my homies on over and over again. But you were on the show not too long ago. This was when you were a part of the startup team for Restart. And on that show, we gave you kind of the full interview treatment of your background and your backstory. And folks can go back and listen to your story on Restart. That episode is on our website. You could you could hear Sam's background, but tonight we're gonna focus on Flurry because, like I said, this is a company I'm super excited about. So, Sam, just give us the briefest introduction you can for the people who are listening for the first time. Let's jump in and talk about Flurry. I, I appreciate that, um, and you know, I, I I'm humbled by the fact that you don't repeat guests a lot, um, but having me here a second time um, just speaks to the hustle, right? Um, there are different things that we're all working on. And, and once in a while you have this massive opportunity that comes along and it's like everything is pushing you in this direction. Um, I'm Sam Badu, originally from Ghana, um, been in Columbus the last five years, um, been in the States the last six years of my life, um, being focused on really building um, commercially sustainable, you know, social businesses. That's what I do. That's what I've been focused on. I currently lead the team at Flurry, um, and, and that's where things get interesting for us. Uh, Flurry is a company that I'm passionate about, primarily because it addresses um, core situations for people like me, immigrants, right? Flurry is an insurtech platform that allows immigrants uh, living in the diaspora to be able to uh, buy health insurance and provide health care coverage for their families living back home. Um, this is this is certainly a big issue that we're going to dive in and, and talk about here. But uh, that's a bit about me. Yeah, we're going to we're going to break that all apart. Right. So we don't want to give them everything right up front. So you were building Restart. And then you announced kind of to your inner circle, hey, I'm making this pivot right to building this new company why did you, why is this the company that you wanted to pivot to and why now hmm um interesting questions there um i think last year 2020 was a real year of reckoning for a lot of people but especially for a lot of black people that i know now for me couple that with the fact that my grandmother passed away in in February of 2020, right? Uh, just about a year ago on the 11th. 
and the situations leading up to her death um, and the discovery that came from that um, situation led me to think of my life differently, my purpose differently. Um, at Restart, we're focused on putting people back to work in a way that builds up community and gets businesses in, in, um, into that play. Um, and then all of a sudden, I'm facing this situation where I'm realizing that what has happened to me, my grandmother passing away, uh, she was diagnosed, referred to a bigger hospital. She thought she could make some savings off of not going to the hospital, but getting some herbal medicine, which is quite popular in, in uh, emerging countries or African countries. Um, that situation cost her life. But that situation, as unfortunate as it was, was revealing of something that happens often. Um, people who live abroad find it super difficult, almost impossible, to provide and manage care for their families back home. And for me, that, that was something that I just couldn't go back to and say, I'm not going to think about this. It affects me. It affects lots of people like me. Um, it, my immigrant journey here from being undocumented, becoming documented, um, and the journey that that has taken me through, right, um, allows me to not ignore um, what these situations are. And so for me, it was, it was just um, a personal situation that could not get me to go back to my life as it was. And, and I had to figure out how to solve some of these problems. And you know, that's what's so interesting about entrepreneurs, right? We, we see a problem and we want to solve it. And, but why did you, you know, some people will take the political route, right? Because we understand in Africa, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, this is a con continent where our systems constantly are, uh, I don't want to say fail us, but we know there are issues within the systems, right? And even here in the United States, we have issues within the healthcare system. So some people might take the NGO route, right? They might go back. <laughs> And they might want to, you know, do the nonprofit route to solve the problem. Some people might want to go back and they might want to go into politics. But the true entrepreneurial spirit is, hey, this is a problem. I need to start a business to solve the problem. Why for you did you think that business was the sustainable option for addressing this issue? Yeah. Um, so that leads me to, you know, several, several years before now, right? Um, my journey as an entrepreneur has been focused on being a serial social entrepreneur. Um, almost everything that I have been a part of um, has fundamentally been to address a social need, um, right? And I could break that down um, later on. But with regards to this, right, the fundamental problem that we were grappling with was access to healthcare in emerging countries. Well, I don't live in Ghana anymore, right? And if I lived there, having lived there for a greater part of my life, the reality is you can either try to lobby the government, right? And try to move developmental aid funds. And we know how that ends up. Poorly mismanaged, um, it's inefficient, right? Unaccounted for, but it also takes a huge amount of time simply to work the system to start making changes. Because what that is trying to affect is infrastructural changes like building more hospitals and clinics and all of that. Um, or you could approach it from the nonprofit route, trying to raise money like every year, a few people do, go donate, but it's a small drop 
in a huge ocean of problems, right? And you're not getting it right because even if you're fixing one piece of it, that one piece isn't going to solve the entire system. And then you can also look at it from a fundamental shift uh, perspective where what action can I take that changes what the equation is, right? Um, and up until now, all the things that we're discussing require you to be making the change on the ground there, right? Where most people take that route. But then what I realized being here, right? Um, and with the background working for Signal Global as a broker partner um, is that insurance works, right? And I happen to live in Columbus. All we see around us are insurance companies. We underwrite risk, we cover risk, we do all sorts of things with risk. Why is that any different for back home? And in addition to that, it was the realization that we don't even need to go out of a way to go find the bucket of money to cause this change. There are 2.8 million African immigrants legally living in the United States. Out of that 2.8 million in 2019, they sent $48 billion back to the continent just from the United States. Now think about that. Several multiples, $48 billion from 2.8 million people, right, to a continent with the, with the largest going to Nigeria and Egypt. Now think of what the global implications are out of the 740 plus billion dollars that have moved in remittance funds, right, 75% of that goes to emerging countries like Ghana, Nigeria. So this pot of money is already sitting there, allocated for, budgeted every year. Immigrants are already spending that money trying to protect the very same people who live in a continent where for every 5,000 people, there's a single doctor. They live in the same place where 6 million people are gonna die from a lack of access to quality care. So what is this 48 billion really going to do? And so we started digging down into it and figuring out, well, they're spending over 25% of the funds they receive just covering health emergencies. And so if you look at it, there's a big need for people to get healthcare. It's the number one reason why people send remittances because you just can't take a chance on your mother being sick and not sending that money. And so what we started to do was to piece together these broken connections and led to what Flurry you know, came out with, which is building the first directed remittance uh, service or product that's focused on healthcare. Because if the money is being sent and we're hoping that people make a decision in their tall list of priorities right, to focus on healthcare, then we end up getting the results that we have. Or we could blow it all up and then think of it fundamentally. Well, we want these people to get healthcare and these people want them to get healthcare. These people are already spending money doing that and they're already losing money doing that. What if there was a better way to connect their money with the healthcare directly, save them a bunch of money and do it more efficiently, give them the control back, make it affordable and run a reliable system. And it looked like all the pieces kind of aligned and we couldn't ignore at least putting it out there and seeing if it was going to work. 
Yeah, Africans in the diaspora are an economy or several economies by themselves, right? They represent, uh, in, in a lot of cases, uh, several percentage points of an entire country's GDP is dependent upon the remittances from um, citizens that are overseas, right? We know that. I mean, I, I'm from Liberia, you're from Ghana, we understand that. When you shared the idea from Flurry with me, I had a visceral reaction to what you're saying. So for you guys out there, I see my man Neil Collins out there, Lolo is on here, Sweet Ease Cookies is out there, Dan Rockwell is out there. We got some luminaries in the audience, right, listening to this. They might be listening and they might hear these things, but because I am from where you're from and you told the, the story of your grandmother, I feel it in my gut as you describe what Flurry does because when we're sending money back home, that money oftentimes has been requested for a very specific purpose. Yeah. But from here, you go to Western Union, you know, I'm using a company name, let me not use company names, but you go to any remittance provider and you mm -hmm. send the money back home. Well, they're gonna take their cut, right? Billions of dollars a year in that transaction. And then the person told you, hey, grandma is sick, uncle is sick, etc." But what you know is that whatever care that money is gonna go to pay for is subpar, right? Because typically access to care, access to pharmaceuticals is also limited. Mm -hmm. So when you told me about Flurry, it was the classic chicken or egg situation, which is, do we build the infrastructure, which is what people are asking for from their political systems? But the, the political system is, is saying, hey, but we don't have people to pay for this uh, uh, modern health care. So I think you're, you're, you're going on the egg side, which is finding a way to connect people through valid insurance that they can actually access high quality health care. So how does Flurry deal with the issue of, yeah, they have the money, but the, the healthcare just isn't there. How do you make that connection with Flurry? Yeah. So in, in the absence, uh, and, and you've done a really good job of like breaking it down, right? And, and connecting it to the problem because the money goes, but the money doesn't fuel the system. It doesn't start um, a flywheel or, you know, a chain reaction that feeds an ecosystem. And that's why it's so broken there. Right. But when you think about it this way, in the absence of governmental spend in improving healthcare, private institutions and healthcare is big business in Africa. If you go to Nigeria, it is huge. Right. They've been able to take this space with tons of privatized healthcare providers. Right. And what comes as a result of that? The people who have the money are the ones who are able to access this care. Now, when you live there and you can't afford it, it sucks. But what if you could afford it in just a different way and you didn't have to pay for it? And so what health insurance does, right, is it pulls together all these resources, which all of a sudden becomes leverage. So the person who before scraping around to find a few dollars to go to the hospital, now all of a sudden has a card, right? And behind that card is an insurance company with a huge balance sheet. 
and, the, and goes to a private hospital where the hospital knows that, well, if I don't provide the best quality service to this person, guess what? I risk being cut off from the insurance company's network. And what we're getting here is for people who live outside, all of a sudden, your dollars aren't just going back, but your dollars are actually fueling the system because insurance companies pay claims. And it's even amazing the way it works, right, without the complexities of the U.S. system, right, for what comprehensive care is like or comprehensive insurance is like in, in these countries, right? So you go there, they're receiving the funds because they know it's going to be paid by the, by the insurance company. They're going to provide a better service. They get the money on time. Now they're able to see predictable income coming in as a healthcare business. They're able to hire more doctors, hire more nurses, make infrastructural changes. It starts to improve the collective health outcomes for even people who don't have relatives here, right? And then we start to see other changes within that health ecosystem. Now, because people are getting um, emergency care, they're getting insurance, pharmaceuticals become embedded as part of the service that they're receiving. So you're getting all this coverage, right? Now we start to see industrial changes, um, home care provisions, concierge care, things that start, to that start to come out because there is a source of funding for this. And that's, that's when you look at that chicken and egg problem that we had, now it's like, we have to start from somewhere and ignite that fire. So that train starts to go and then we start to see structural changes. And that's really why I believe that the diaspora represents the biggest opportunity for places like Africa to really supercharge and leapfrog, you know, and come back from behind into, into this technological improvement age. Okay, so Sam, I got my man Dan Rockwell super active in the comment section. So he has a question for you and then I'll follow up with uh, uh, my next question. So Dan asks, what percentage of people uh, are sending money via traditional, like cash, you know, you receive cash on the other end or via a digital currency of some kind? Do you know, do you have any data on that? The percentage of people or total percentage of dollars? That uh, no, there, there isn't a lot of data around digital currency and if, if you listen to the news, it's because in most African countries, it's mostly banned, right? Um, the Nigerian government just last week asked all banks to close accounts for people who had traded in digital currency. So huge amounts of dollars. It's not tracked. There's no uh, considerably valid data coming out that is justifiable because this isn't even approved by the governments. Right, but if you look at over ninety percent of people who send money back home are using Western Union, MoneyGram, World Remit. They're using all of these digital channels, but it's all based on the traditional money sent. There's an agent, or it's going to mobile money, which we started to really see a proliferation of in, in Africa. Okay, so when I'm hearing your, let, let's talk about your customer journey, right? So I'm hearing four customers there. One, the person sending money. Two, the insurance company. Three, the healthcare provider. And four, the patient. So how does, I know the need for the person sending the money is being addressed, but let's talk about these different customer journeys. So what is the benefit to me sending the money through so, Flurry if it's for healthcare purposes? Yeah. Uh, number one is peace of mind. 
right? That's that's the most important piece of all of this. It's not waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning to a call that says, hey, grandma is sick, I need $1,000, and you have to go find it, right? Uh, for people who don't know, Ghana and most other countries operate on a cash and carry basis, right? That's how it works. Uh, Oh, I, I, hear, I hear the one year. That's, that's, that's my one son. Year. All right, let's just keep going. <laughs> let's keep, let's keep going. So, um, what, what that means is that um, you have to have money before you get care. Um, and it gets even crazier. If you go to a hospital and they are merciful enough, right, to provide the care before you give them the money, they will detain you in the hospital while your fees go up until someone comes to bail you out. This is what nonprofits take care of. They basically pay hospitals to release patients after they're taken care of, right? And so it's that peace of mind. It also saves you money, right? You're not paying for healthcare out of pocket, which means that your money goes further with an insurance policy, but also you're not losing money on that nine to 12%. The African corridor for sending money is the most expensive in the world for money transfers. That's crazy. It's the reason why the WTO has been lobbied several times, right? The poorest people, it costs the most money to actually send money to them. And so those are three things that make a difference for the customer who is here, right? And then you go on to the insurance company, right? They sit in the middle. They're underwriters. They're the, the ones underwriting the risk. Insurance has a penetration of about 3% in Africa. A lot has been written about it. Different reasons, primarily affordability is one. You live in a continent where over 80% of people are working in informal trades, right? So they don't have formal employment. They own their own little shops, kiosks, right? They're doing their own little business. It's mostly mom and pops. So there's no predictable income. Buying an insurance policy requires you to be able to at least understand that you're going to be able to pay premiums. With no predictable income, there's no way you value that because you're just locking money away for an event that may happen while you have needs like eating, paying for that funeral, taking a car to work, and all of that. And so it hasn't worked well with that model. For insurance companies who work with us, they see the gold, right? One, we're aggregating the customers. All they have to do is chill in the back and write the paper, underwrite that policy, and they're taking care of the same consumer, the same customer, right, that they were always taking care of with much less work, right? So it made sense to them. And that's the reason why we had some very early wins with our partnerships, uh, launching the pilot in Ghana and now in Nigeria. So let me, stop, now, let me stop you there. And, and maybe this is more inside baseball on the insurance side, but you know this is an insurance city. I'm in anticipating the insurance people in the comment section questions right now. So with 3% uh, uh, penetration, how do they price risk, right? Because you would expect that a vast majority of these people have no history, health history, no primary care contact, probably, you know, all the preventative care has been missed. And so now you're receiving a 60 year old woman uh, who's coming as a with no health history for you to actually price risk, traditionally price risk on. So w w what is happening on the insurance side to price premiums for me as the customer here in the US? Yeah. 
Um, so you're 100% right on the breakdown, right? And that's the reason why insurance is so out of reach for people back there, because it's so expensive. It hasn't helped that the laws themselves don't help, right? Most people are pricing risk based on known pools. So employers are the primary source of insurance. If you have a formal job working with a company like Coca-Cola, Barclays, or the rest, right, that's when you're going to get insurance from an employer. Private insurance is very rare. Now, there are 17 insurance companies, right, within the health sector, 17 health insurance companies in Ghana. Only two of them underwrite retail um, insurance policies for the average person. To get these insurance policies, you have to go pay for your own health checks, right? You have to pay 12 months in advance. There are a ton of exclusions, right, that you have to overcome. And there are so many limits. For instance, you couldn't get insurance after the age of 59, right, unless you were through an employer. You can't get insurance when you have a pre-existing condition. And so they eliminate that risk by simply not covering it. Right. This is what the traditional system is like. So when we came in, right, looking at the data from the number of people we were talking to, what the numbers look like from the data, uh, the surveys, the publications, the World Bank does a ton of research in this remittance space, right, looking at where the dollars are flowing and where the dollars are being spent. They saw what the opportunity was to be able to increase their risk tolerance for this market because for the person here, they're not really underwriting the person who lives here. They're, they're underwriting the same person back home with the same data that they've gathered over the last 50 years. The only difference is that their risk tolerance changes because now there's someone who has a propensity to buy, right? If you look at both sides, an average policy, right, is costing you between $25 and about $70, $85 a month. Nothing compared to the kind of healthcare costs or health insurance costs that we see here. So paying $25 a month for someone here right, to provide care back home isn't that significant, which means that the chances of them paying and continue to pay on premiums is really high. That's where the insurance companies start to modify their pricing. And now we're able to do a lot more things with them. Like we cover, pre-existing conditions with the loadings applied. We cover um, um, senior care. We're providing some more innovative products. Um, and very soon, we're going to be releasing micro-insurance policies to even cover the lower person. All right, listen, y'all. You guys right now, you're listening to 614 Startups, my special guest, Mr. Stan, but do a flurry breaking it down. Listen, we're going to do content like this, but you guys, this is an offering that we're going to provide on our website for people who are members where Sam and I might go into a full conversation about pricing insurance risk on the African continent, exclusively available to 614 Startups members. So we want to keep this high level, Sam, because I can talk to you about that insurance side of things. Uh, a little bit more in depth because if they're pricing it based on employer pools, you know, employer pools tend to usually be younger and they're skewing the risk, et cetera, et cetera. I get it. So let's talk about the healthcare providers right now. There are probably entrepreneurial healthcare providers who would like to grow, but people can't really afford their service. So working with the insurance companies, how do you guys help the healthcare providers not only grow, right, with existing services, but actually find the capital to scale, 
right? CT scans, CAT scans, all, all of those things that we know Africa is lacking. How, how does working with Flurry or becoming a, a preferred provider in one of your insurance networks going to help a healthcare provider? So for, for a healthcare provider, um, two things here, and, and we'll take Ghana as a subset, right? Um, most people might have heard and read um, there are only about three countries in the whole of Africa that have successfully launched, um, you know, universal basic healthcare. Ghana is one of them. Um, Rwanda is a very, very successful, probably the most successful case we have. Um, and so if you look at Ghana and providing basic healthcare, right, the NHIS uh, was, was started in 2012. It launched, um, I was in Ghana at that time. And very quickly, we started to realize what it really was like to provide insurance for, you know, 26 million people, right? Very quickly, um, we started to experience the problems with reimbursement from a government that is doing that, right? The premiums were too low to actually cover the people. And that has, you know, uh, degraded, the quality of it has degraded over time to the point where you either pay out of pocket so you can actually get preferential treatment at, hospital. And then where this leads to is that healthcare providers simply stopped accepting it. They had to get accredited to accept insurance, right? And they didn't see the point of it because it really didn't benefit them from the government side. Private health insurance changes that dynamic. It pays on time. It pays at market rates. It pays consistently, right? And it also serves as organizing the pool of people who constantly come to you for service. So now starting a healthcare business was not such a crazy risk, right? Where Flurry comes in is now we're able to start encouraging health service uh, providers to offer different care products or different procedures that previously they just couldn't see a way of people affording to pay for this, right? Like CT scans, not everybody was offering that. But now, if we have a pool of people who live in Kumase, and there was just one hospital that was providing CT scans, that hospital starts to get all of these expatriate or um, immigrant-sponsored um, you know, patients, right? Now they see the benefit in starting to provide this because the quality that is expected from an immigrant who lives here for their family back home is different from the person who has no choice and is left at the mercy of the local economy. And so what we're seeing is the providers are starting to ask to join uh, the networks for the different insurance companies. They're also starting to offer new services. The networks themselves, the, the insurance carriers are starting to, uh, to roll out innovative products within what we're creating, right? Like home healthcare, at-home testing, lab testing at home, right? Concierge care um, and other innovative things, uh, pharmaceutical deliveries. Previously, they just didn't have anybody who was interested because it cost extra. Now we're pricing it and baking it into the product. More people have access to it and it makes financial sense to them. Listen, this gets me so excited about, um, you know, one of the, the, the values here is that we truly believe that entrepreneurship can change the world. And that, that was the question that I posed to you initially, where some people go the NGO route, some people go into politics, other people go into business. I really like the fact that you've elected to take the business route in terms of addressing this problem. Uh, I was going to get into the patient, but I think we've already made the case 
for why the patient benefits. They have access now where they otherwise needed to, you know, pay because they were self-insured and they were paying cash. They had to pay the full price, right? There was no insurance to help mitigate the cost. And now they have access to newer products, different programs and better services as a result of being a patient of Flaring. Now, let's talk about the Columbus ecosystem and having an idea like this that solves a problem for a continent that most people have little to no experience with. It's hard enough raising money in Columbus just uh, in general, but what has been your experience so far, right? Because this is a big idea, right? You're going to need funding to reach scale. It's not really a bootstrap thing here, right? Um, what has been your experience going out into the market and making the case for why this is something that's going to be big and is investable? Mm. <laughs> um, probably some people in, in your audience uh, know how this, this has gone. Um, you know, we've had several conversations uh, since last year, um, and you're right. you got to sell it, and it's a big vision to sell. Right, especially when the pain and the knowledge about the people who benefit from this or the people for whom this matters isn't that obvious, right? To the kind of crowds where we're trying to raise money. Um, but Columbus happens to be the sister city to Accra, where I was born, right? And um, you know, most recently visiting um, Ghana in October. Um, I, I had a chance to connect with some of the people at the American Chamber of Commerce in Ghana, as well as there's, there's a whole organization that is focused on connecting Columbus to Ghana and to Accra uh, from the, the mayor's office there. Um, that led to some other conversations you know, here uh, with people that we've spoken to. Um, fundraising has been tough, um, but we do have some uh, local Columbus um, investors who, who are participating in um, our pre-seed round that's going to be closing uh, very soon. Um, a few of them, but yes, Columbus is certainly represented. Um, on the bigger side, outside of just capital, right, or financial capital, there's the piece about, you know, the ecosystem itself fostering the knowledge around this. Um, some of our advisors work in uh, some well-known insurance companies, right, um, locally. This is really good for us because it allows us to tap into that knowledge base. It allows us to get those relationships. Um, a lot of people have been helpful along the way in thinking through the product and thinking through what we're really up against, right? Then there's also Rev1 that locally um, has opened its doors. We've been, we've been with um, Rev1 for a while as a venture studio, really great at organizing thought, helping us go along. And so the ecosystem in itself um, has been instrumental in, in all of this coming around and, and definitely giving us the confidence that, look, we can always hire people here. There's always going to be great talent here. Um, this is the next big tech hub. So we're in the right place at the right time um, for this. And as the world opens up, Columbus is opening up as well. And I think that's an opportunity for us to become a bridge to to the emerging markets, right? I think for investors here, this is a wave that they can ride, exposing them to Nigeria, to Ghana, 
where a lot of big things are happening, but maybe they just haven't had a reason to dip, to dip their toes in there. That's wonderful, man. We got so many people joining us on live. Thank you guys so much for being here. You're listening to the 614 Startups. My name is Elio Harmon with my guest, Sam Badu of Flurry. We got Jasmine Hurley in here. We got Tony. We got Toby in the house. We got CJ. Uh, who else is in here? Life as a Key. Uh, Shanika is in here. Marlon is in here. Of course, my man Dan Rockwell is mad active in the chat. Now, guys, throw your questions, comments, likes in the chat. If you have a question for Sam, we're going to keep the conversation going. We would like to hear from you guys. That's why we decided to go live, because we wanted this to be interactive. So go ahead and put your comments in there. I'm going to keep, keep chatting with this guy. Now, Sam, you did an artful job of dodging my question. Because you and I had a conversation and I was upset for you by uh, 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 an offer that came across that was, you know, we're not going to talk about that. But I, I understand the frustrations. And, and, and one of the things, because our core customer are folks who are working right now in a company thinking about starting a startup. They're just starting a startup and they are trying to figure and feel their way through. Right. Or they might be further along. Right. Like yourself, where you're looking at raising your first round. Right. But one of the things that I think people when they hear the success stories of startups, they don't really understand how many times you get kicked in the teeth and how many issues you're going to run into that make you feel so discouraged. Like, yo, is this something I really want to do? So let's talk about that experience, not necessarily the details of the experience, but how the experience actually made you feel. Right. In, in, in terms of its impact in shaping your thinking uh, going forward in this business. Yeah. Um, so the way the way I approach, uh, you know, challenges, whether it's with uh, fundraising or, or anything really that comes across um, at this point, this is my fifth startup. So, um, you know, I've, I've been run through the mud a little bit, you know, prior to this, that you you start to develop Tuscan a little bit. It's not it's not personal, right? Especially when it comes to raising money. Man, I, I love everybody that says no and and I even love everybody that says yes, um, you know, a bit more. But the lessons that you learn along the way is what is making you a much more, you know, sophisticated founder and, and learning new things along the way. Everybody is dropping gems on your mind. Right. Everybody is talking to you through these different things. And even the people who take time just to listen and offer you their two cents are doing you a favor. Right. And the people who are even more critical are, are doing you a much bigger favor, because at the end of the day, um, for me, I go to bed, wake up every morning. I am most fearful for my customer. Right. My customer can fire me for any number of the existing solutions that exist, right? Um, and, and that's what I'm most worried about. And so for me, anything that I hear or the experiences that we go through, right, will, will shape you, but it is frustrating. That's the feeling. It is very frustrating. Um, the depression is real, right? Um, give you an example uh december and early january right i came back from ghana in november and first thing that happened probably heard uh stripe changed you know how it was measuring risk how it was looking at companies and it dropped most insurance related businesses um this affected us right 
And so now all of a sudden, we're scrambling going through all of these different applications trying to find a payment processor. For a whole month, we couldn't acquire any new customers. So we're just talking to people, but we really can't do anything with them. And right, if we're not running the process, we're not really learning from the process at this early stage. And that was really, really frustrating. But again, the same people who are in the community, both here in New York and in San Francisco, a lot of people gave us referrals. Hey, talk to this person about payments, talk to this person about payments. You know, people like Matt Gollis, uh, people right, around the community, really great, who opened up their expertise. Hey, I think I know this person. I don't know what's gonna happen, but I'll give you an intro. We figured it out, right? And so for me, I think that toughness for anybody who's thinking about it is stop keeping things to yourself, right? Um, be an open book, both about the challenges, about the successes, about the fears, right? Because that's what actually gets you your solutions. There's a saying in, in one of the, the languages in Ghana and Akan that if you don't sell your disease, you don't find a cure. And that has been something that I constantly think about in speaking to people. It means that I have to be honest enough about what is really going on for the solutions that they propose or what they think might help right, to actually be beneficial to me. And, and I think that's an attitude that um, it takes a while to get comfortable enough to, to tell someone, hey, I think I'm failing at this, right? Or these experiments are failing. We're not finding traction um, on these channels or, man, I just suck at sales, right? If you're not telling people the truth, then they really can't figure out a way to help you. And, and so that honesty about the rawness of the process that we're going through, whether it is fundraising, whether it's getting introductions, um, you have to be honest about that within the networks that you're in to be able to get the help. All right, now, two things that you brought up, two things, you could pick which one you wanna deal with. You said, this is your fifth startup. So mm -hmm. entrepreneurs tend to be like in love with their startup, right? So it would be the equivalent of like, you've had four divorces and this is wife number five, right? So how do you deal with the process of starting something, being deeply in love and then having to let it go to start the next thing? What, what is that process like? Because I, I, I would venture to guess that people who are watching this now, who will watch this are struggling, right? Maybe they have a startup that they're in love with, but they haven't been able to get the traction. Maybe it's time to let that thing go. How, how did, what was your decisioning process around letting some of those go to open up this opportunity? Ultimately, that seems to be the one that's gonna help you solve this real problem in the world. Drop it like it's hot. Okay. For real. Sam, right? Sam um, said, drop down and get your eagle on, girl. Drop that thing. No, for, for real, because um, your attachment to, to an idea um, really, if you think about it, a startup is a series of experiments, right? That you want to undertake to validate something. And then when you validate that, that's when you start to build a business. And so that process that you go through, if you become attached to that process, you're preventing yourself. You're actually preventing yourself from building the business that you wanna build. And so I don't have the luxury and I didn't have the luxury Right, growing up in Ghana, um, you know, from our days at Heal the World, to say, well, this isn't working, so we're going to continue doing it. Right? Nobody's giving you money. Nobody's giving you money to do this. 
Um, I started a company called Kitchen Express. You know, years back, um, great company. It, it basically Instacart for Ghana, right? Think about it that way. We were doing grocery delivery, um, getting customers off of Facebook. Most of my customers were expatriates. Problem was, it was a, a good idea in the wrong cultural context, right? In 2013, people wanted to go to the malls in Ghana. It was a cool thing where they took pictures. I didn't get that because I just come back from Morocco and I thought, oh yeah, why wouldn't you want to have time to yourself, right? Get someone to go do your groceries for you. Well, fail, right? And I had to let that go after six months. That was my personal money that got burnt, right? And then successively, we do all of these different things and you realize that, well, if it's not working, Either you figure out a different way to make it work, but you have to have an end point. You have to have a point at which, like, no, I don't think this is working. Do something else, right? And so for, for me, that's how I really have, have tried to go through that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to my interview with Sam Badu of Flurry Sam. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This has been super interesting, I'm sure. A lot of takeaways throughout this show, folks. But the one takeaway is the classic line, and we're going to have to make a meme out of it. When, when asked, what do you do when you are in love and you fall out of love with your startup, Sam Badu wants you to drop it like it's hot. Thank you for joining us for another episode. Peace.